Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. I'm not sure what you were doing when you were eight years old, but I'd guess that it doesn't quite come close to what today's guest did at this age. Alyssa Azar followed in her father's trekking footsteps and completed the Kokoda Track at the age of eight, kick-starting a love of trekking, climbing, and really ultimately smashing big goals. In 2016, Alyssa became the youngest Australian to summit Mount Everest at the age of 19. And then earlier this year, 2018, she summited Everest again, but from the other side, from the north side. Alyssa describes the experience of walking that final 700 metres at Mount Everest and why, even faced with a goal in sight, that you can never take success for granted and therefore how important it is to be fully present to the moment that you are in. Alyssa's is a great story of courage, endurance, never giving up even when faced with remarkable challenges. And she will talk about the mindset to achieve great things and why when you achieve something, it's actually really important to make sure you set the next goal. This is a determined young woman who knows how to set an audacious goal and has the determination to do whatever it takes to achieve it. Please enjoy this insightful conversation with Alyssa Azar. Alyssa, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's a bit fresh out there this morning for it Brisbane. It is. <laughs> yes, it's a bit cool at the moment. But you've obviously been in much cold, colder climate. Yes. So this is probably summer yeah, compared like, to... Yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't complain, yeah. <laughs> so you've had some incredible achievements and achievements at such a young age. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of your mountaineering and, and the summits that you have done. I understand that you've um, you've now summited Mount Everest twice. You've done both the north yes. and the south side. Can you describe for me what it was like or what was going through your mind that night before the very first summit that you did? Yes. The night before you knew that you would be summiting the next morning. What was what was going through your head? What were you thinking? What were you feeling at that time? Yeah, you know, it was pretty, I think, just surreal. It was a, you know, we got up to Camp 4, which is the final camp that day before you leave for the summit. Uh, a few things. It was just being where I had read about and thought about being for so many years and then I was actually there. And also to be that close to the summit, uh, there's a lot of adrenaline knowing that you've got that final day and tomorrow we could be standing on top of the world. Uh, How close a, are you at that point? What have you got So there? you've only got about 700 metre climb um, vertical to get to the summit and that's about a 12-hour day as a rule. So, yeah, that's uh, the final stretch and, yeah, I just remember thinking I can't believe it's finally here and... Uh, I was surprised how good I actually felt at that altitude, but I think it is that you are so close, you're kind of able to tune all of the little discomforts out that you would probably notice otherwise because the goal's so important to you. So the adrenaline's pumping through you. Yes. The, the bits that are going, let's get down, you're ignoring. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, uh, you know, you kind of get used to those. Like, you're not really sleeping at that altitude. It's hard to eat. Um, you're pretty exhausted from the climb up to that point. But, yeah, I found that I was able to tune all of that out 
now that, okay, well, this is what it's all come down to. So you kind of feel like you've put the work in, it's time to get the results as well. 700 metres and a 12-hour day yes. back and forth is just really hard to comprehend, yes. isn't it? <laughs> Describe for me or let let us know why it takes so long to yeah, get through Yeah, so that because seven. of the altitude. Um, so that is maximum pace. Um, and if you sort of look at footage of yourself, you go like, we are going so slow, but your internal system is working at its max capacity because of the lack of oxygen. Um, so you'll take 10 steps and you'll have to have a break because that's how exhausting it is. And so it, it is just because of the lack of oxygen. Um, and that's even when we're acclimatised. And are you monitoring, I guess, your heart rate or anything of that, or are you just tuning into what your body? More tuning into what your body is doing. And I guess trying to have your mind and body work together as much as possible. Uh, because, you know, I found that the best tip I got and that I certainly used on summit night was to get into a rhythm, even if it is 10 steps. Okay, take a couple of breaths, take another 10 steps. The thing is you want to constantly be moving. And yeah, just trying to get your body really in tune with your mind as well and getting them to work together is the biggest challenge I think on a mountain. So you got through that 700 metres. Yes. You are standing at the summit of Mount Everest. Yes. Now what's going through your mind? Um, Almost, yeah, disbelief. I think it wasn't until that final hour that I knew 100% like this was going to happen because you just never know what weather conditions are going to come in or anything like that. And so you try not to look too far ahead, just take it one day at a time because a lot of luck has to come together as well for all of that work to kind of line up. Um, I is that hard to do mentally where you're kind of going, no, 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 we're going to do this. We can't have come this far. It's only just there. You can probably see it Yeah. now, I can imagine. Yeah, that's right. But there's a part of your mind having to go, I can't, it's not done until we're an hour away. Yeah, that is really hard, you know, particularly on a two-month expedition where you've got to, yeah, sort of put your all into it each day. And I found it is really challenging to mentally draw yourself back to just focus on what you're doing right now. It is easy to kind of get carried away and go, we're so close. Um, But yeah, just taking it as it comes is really important. And I remember when we started our summit push, we were getting sort of mixed calls about what the weather was doing, what the forecast was saying. We really didn't know if we were going to get a summit window. And my mindset was just, I'm going to go as far as I can and do everything I can. And I can't ask any more of myself. If it doesn't line up, then then that's the mountain. Um, but yeah, it is tough to kind of mentally draw yourself back in and go, just do what you can. Is there a few kind of words to the mountain going out, going, come on, just let me, <laughs> yes. just give me this Yes, like, come on, I know if I get a window, I can do this. Like, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely you're hoping and praying that it works out. And, um, yeah, we ended up getting pretty lucky with our weather window, fortunately. So when you're up there, do you get a chance to actually stop, reflect, celebrate in the moment? Or are your, is your mind quickly going to, now we've got to turn around and get back and do A bit of both. So you really have got 15 or 20 minutes on a summit because we're up in um, what they call the death zone, 8,000 metres and above. You've got sort of 24 hours to be up there before you've got to get back down, even on oxygen. It just becomes a lot more dangerous the longer you spend. Um, but yeah, when we got up there, I took a moment to be really in the moment, take it all in and then grab a few photos. And then it's, yeah, we've got to get back down. So you get to enjoy that moment for a little bit, um, but then you realise we're not out of it yet. Um, really, we're only halfway and it's not until you get back to base camp really that you go, okay, now we can fully reflect on what we did. Um, yeah. 
Get out of that death zone. That's a bit of a brutal name. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's what they call it. Yep. Yeah. What's it like to be, I guess, so confronted with something that is such a unique achievement? There are not mm-hmm. uh, many people that have been able to summit Everest. Yeah. But at the same time, also be confronted with, you know, words like the death zone, that your own mortality, your own, I guess, level of risk um, in yeah. what you're doing. How, you know, how do you kind of combat that? It is challenging. Um, it's something that, particularly in the lead up to Everest, you think about a lot because you realise there is so much out of my control. Um, you know, I've seen climbers do everything right and it still went wrong. It's just the nature of what we do. Part of the attraction of the mountain, I think, is that it's a very real environment and you're up against the elements. Um, so, yeah, you kind of you learn to live with it and try to manage it. I guess for me, I'd prefer to confront things like that, try and understand why I fear it versus, well, I'm not going to do it because of that. One thing that, uh, you know, I certainly believe after climbing on expeditions is everyone's got their own risk acceptance level. And even as a team, we sort of work within that. We certainly had climbers pull out before getting to the highest sections of the mountain because they just decided I'm not willing to risk that. And it's, it's something that each climber has to sort of reflect on themselves and decide what they're willing to risk for a summit, I guess. Have you seen people change that? You know, where base camp they go, no, 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 I'll risk it all and then get yes, up closer and absolutely. go, no, 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 I'm not ready to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, everyone in base camp was pretty keen to go and then we had about four pull up, uh, pull out higher up and, yeah, just uh, a couple. There's a pretty dangerous section first up on the mountain called the Cumbu Icefall and we had a few pull out in there and then one up higher because of not wanting to go to the higher altitudes. Um, but, yeah, everyone sort of in base camp was really keen to go and then it's quite confronting to know, like, I have no idea what's going to happen today or in the next week. Um, it could be great or it could be catastrophic. So that's pretty confronting for people to deal with for sure. It's very real. Yeah. Like you're hitting with reality and having very real conversations, I imagine, with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And with your team and the people around you and no doubt looking at each other and going where's this support coming from? It's okay yeah. if you make that call, but then I n- now don't have that yeah. lifeline. Absolutely. I need to look at that in internally for me. So that first summit you did in, in 2016. Yes. And that made you the youngest Australian yes. at the age of 19 to ever summit Mount yes. Everest. <laughs> did you realise that, was that a goal that you were chasing or was that more just... Um, not so much. I think it was just there. Um, I'd certainly set the goal before I knew that that record would be there. Um, but it was more so once I had done it. I remember coming down the mountain going, oh, I'm the youngest Australian to do it. I kind of had that realisation. But for me, it was just about the climb more than anything else. Yeah. And what got you into climbing and mountaineering? Like why... Why at 19 would you be finding yourself on a summit? Yeah, so I got into it really through trekking. Um, So when I was little, I was very athletic. I liked any sports at school. Um, And my dad happened to be a trekking guide, predominantly on the Kokoda track at the time. So he was working for another company doing that. And I think I just found it really fascinating. He'd come back from, you know, the jungles of Papua New Guinea and I got to hear all these stories about the people he would take and kind of all these adventures. And um, often I would go out bushwalking on the weekends with clients he was preparing to take to Kokoda and it was kind of one of my favourite things to do. I liked the physicality of it, the the mental challenge, but also just being out in nature. Um, For me, it combined all these different things that I loved. 
And I kind of got the idea in my head after a while that, hey, maybe I could do Kokoda. Um, so I remember for a few years kind of harassing my dad, hoping to one day go. And uh, when I was about seven, he actually came back from a trip and said, all right, if you really want to go, I'll give you the opportunity. But I'm going to give you a year-long training program and you're not to miss a session. And if I think you're not working hard enough, you won't go. His idea being like, you're not going to complete a year-long training program. Um, but to me, it was like, oh, the opportunity to go to Kokoda. And so we trained for the next year. And uh, in August 2005, myself, my dad and a couple friends of his, we all went over and crossed the Kokoda track. And that was pretty surreal experience as well. So um, you were an eight-year-old. Yeah, eight years old uh, on the Kokoda track and uh, it was certainly earlier than I ever thought I'd get to have that experience. Uh, what did your dad, who is obviously now your coach, who thought you wouldn't do it, what, yes. he, what was he saying? Yeah, what was funny is like I was just trying to get you to quit because I thought you'd see how hard it is and like this isn't even on the track yet. Uh, but I, I just loved it and uh, yeah, it was like I fully didn't expect to be going but um, it was a pretty cool experience for both of us once we were over there doing it. so I can imagine he would have been pretty chuffed, pretty proud yes, to, yeah. to have you there yeah. as well. And why did he get into trekking? What was that kind of background So his background was the army. So he spent 17 years in the Australian army um, in a few different roles, infantry and then as an aviation medic. And because of that, uh, this company had brought him in because they were taking a lot of corporate groups across the Kokoda track. And with his medical evacuation skills, they brought him on board as a safety measure. And through that, he started to sort of look at, well, what do I want to do after the army? And he just loved trekking and it suited his skill set that he had spent years sort of working on. And so it was a good transition for him, I think. And while he was still in, he was, uh, you know, doing the occasional trek on the side. And then once he got out, decided to go into it full time in guiding. So, uh, yeah, that's really how, how we both got into it. The connection, yeah. family, family then coming yeah. and following Absolutely. him as well. Have you got brothers and sisters? I do. I have two sisters, one brother. And, and uh, they, have they followed a Not at all. Track? No? They're, they're the polar opposite. So they're like, okay, you have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> they looked at all the hard training. And yeah. The coach went, went, mm, not so much. So yeah. here you are, you're an eight-year-old. You've done Kokoda. Yes. I have an eight-year-old daughter and I struggled to get her to run 200 metres. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in year three, having come back and done Kokoda, something that a yes. lot of even adults, you know, aspire to try to achieve. Yeah. Where does life go from there? What do you do from there? Yeah, I think uh, I got a glimpse after that of the fact that you have these experiences and then there's that coming down period of like, oh, well, now I've done it and my goal's finished and you enjoy that for a period of time, but it doesn't take long before you start to look for that next thing. And um, for me, I still loved the trekking and adventure and knew if I could, I wanted to do something like that again and started to look around at what was out there and uh, got onto Everest Base Camp. So, uh, you know, kind of mentioned it to my dad. I was like, what do you think about this trip? And he said, well, in a few years, maybe we'll look at going. And it was about two years after we did Kokoda, we ended up going to Everest Base Camp with a team as well. Um, so trekking through the Himalayan mountain range and the foothills over there and getting to see Everest in the flesh for the first time. Uh, it was pretty crazy as a, as a 10-year-old as well. Uh, but yeah, every couple of years it became something that we'd kind of do together. 
throughout my childhood. Um, two years after that, it was Kosciuszko in the 10 highest peaks here in Australia, all based in Kosciuszko National Park. And then uh, Kilimanjaro a couple of years after that. But each one of these things, you know, it was the, the planning process, setting the goal, following through with the training for six months to a year, then going to do it. And I think that was what I enjoyed as well, that whole process of working up to it um, and having that goal ahead of you to achieve. Uh, but yeah, it was after I did Mount Kilimanjaro in 2011 that I decided Everest was, was what I was going to do and that I wanted to get more into mountains and, and climbing. Did you have a sense, you know, because I guess what you've described as being a 10-year-old going to base camp and then 12-year-old yeah. um, and having these year to two-year kind of goals that you're chasing, did you have a sense that that was unusual uh, connected to your friends at high school, I guess, or going through school? Yeah, more so as I hit high school. Um, I guess for a lot of years it's really all I knew, um, that process. And then, yeah, once I got into high school, realised that it was completely different and... Um, it, it almost felt like having two separate lives in a way, like you'd go to school and people didn't really get what I was doing on the side. And um, yeah, my training and all of that was just separate. And then, uh, but yeah, I, I did start to catch on to that. It was quite unusual. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. So whenever I could be training or pursuing that, I would. And did your friends and I guess even um, would have been after you left school, but mm. um, your community I guess, rally around that support when you did Summit Everest? Yeah, definitely. When I uh, got back to Kathmandu, uh, they said, oh, we want to do a whole homecoming thing. So we actually flew into Brisbane and then flew to Toowoomba and did all of that. And uh, they actually gave me the keys to the city. So we did a whole um, ceremony for that. So yeah, there was a lot of support um, after summiting. Yeah, so that's then the realisation. Yeah, <laughs> what it's I've kind done, of like, what I've yeah, achieved. Yeah, absolutely. I love that fascination around, and I think it's true for anyone, it doesn't have to be summoning no. mountains, but that once you've achieved a goal, there can be this period afterwards that's yeah. almost a bit of a, um, I don't know, a bit of a post-achievement not quite depression, but this this hole that you kind of go into, particularly if it's something you've been working really daily, it's yeah, been Yeah, well, we mind. see it a lot with Kokoda even. You know, people <laughs> we take to Kokoda, they often don't realise, but, you know, you spend a year working toward it, it seems so far away, then all of a sudden it's here, and then you cross the track and, you know, all of a sudden it's done. And they kind of, we do call it the post-Kokoda blues. You'll have a period where it's like, oh, I can't believe it's finished. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty normal to get that, I think. And um, often it's... Just trying to, I guess, appreciate, you know, being back and having achieved your goal and then when you're ready to set set something else you want to do. And that's often the piece that's really key is actually going, what's that next goal? Yeah. Um, and I've even heard people, you know, doing that before that goal's even achieved, so mm. just starting to put some plans into place around, Yeah. okay, yeah, this is this all-consuming thing that I'm chasing and mm. it might be work, it might be family-related, it might be yeah. um, health and fitness, it might be something, whatever it is for you. Um but to really notice and realise that that's part of that kind of process as well. Yeah. Aside from those, just though, that kind of post-achievement blues, how do you find that integration, I guess, even back into so-called normal life? Because I imagine when you're trekking yeah. um, and and I'm imagining it's for a couple of weeks you're mm -hmm. consumed by that and every moment is all consumed about my survival, my existence, yes, my absolutely. pack, my food, like mm -hmm. the really kind of almost the basics of, of life, um, the connection with people, how are they feeling, where are they at, where are they supporting, what support do I need? Um, 
that you're really absolutely in the moment. Yes. And then you come back and you need to go and buy a toothpaste or you've got to go through coals. Or <laughs> yes. There are things that, you know, uh, might almost be, um, oh, I wonder if that, you know, your tolerance for just the the crap that sometimes we deal with in life. How do you find that integration? It is really challenging. It's probably been a challenge that I didn't necessarily see coming post-Everest because I guess that was just a heightened version of the same thing with Kokoda. You know, it was something I spent three to five years working on by the time I finally successfully summited. And so then for that to be done, so getting back into your your sort of day-to-day normal life, it is challenging because you are used to this really heightened experience. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you're right, you know, there's all these errands you've got to run and things you've got to do. So it certainly is challenging. Um, I'm not sure I've 100% found the way to best deal with that. Uh, But I try to just... I guess, um, yeah, get back into a routine. So I'll go and train because I enjoy that or, you know, make sure I go to the gym in the morning, go and get a coffee, spend time with family. I try and, yeah, sort of get back into a daily routine that I enjoy doing and, uh, yeah, before looking toward whatever the next thing is, yeah. Setting the next goal, (laughs) the next achievement and, again, probably understanding that that's part of that Yeah, absolutely. You talk about the importance of mindset and Mm -hmm. even to get to the summit or that kind of sense of risk. What helps you get into a really, um, I guess, focused mindset? Where does that come from for you? Yeah, I think a few things. Um, First and foremost, like I can say, particularly when I was on Everest, uh, there's little cues, certainly visualisation, something I've always done, not even realising it, but knowing that you've got something ahead, uh, something you think about a lot. I'd imagine myself being on the mountain um, at different stages. I knew the route that I would be climbing, so that certainly helps as well. Um, I think the physical training that I did prior, but also pushing yourself mentally while you're doing that, um, getting to understand what happens in your own mind when you're in those really hard situations and how can I improve that? And so it's really just working through that thought process of when you are in pain or you're having some of those harder times, um, sort of learning to allow your mind to work with you and not against you and finding the best way to tap into that. Um, And I found on the mountain when I could be totally in the moment, I performed at my best when I wasn't concerned about the next camp or the summit or anything like that. And it was just, um, you know, the next 10 steps or just being 100% in the moment and giving my best that day, I found that I performed better. Is that something you've brought back to training and even into your life? Because again, I can imagine that would be really powerful for anyone listening to go whatever you're doing, just be all there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I try to in whatever it is that I am doing, even back home, whether it is a gym session or something completely different, just trying to give what I can to each thing as I'm doing it. Um, And I do always find that I'm able to get more out of myself that way. One of the ways that you get back to that strength of a mindset when it feels like every obstacle has been placed in front of you. And as you said, so 2016 is when you summited Everest. Yes. But you attempted in 2014 and 15. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Look, it is really challenging, particularly when it is outside circumstances, which happens to a lot of people. Something you don't see coming happens. Uh, I guess the best way that I've looked at it that actually a mentor of mine described to me before I'd ever been on Everest when I was going for my first attempt he talked about 
you know, on the mountain, but I've certainly used this throughout my life now, is uh, the perfect performance line. So, you know, if there was this line of if everything went the way we wanted it to and everything was perfect, what would that look like? And then that's what you're going to try and anchor yourself back to. So whenever it feels like you're getting off course, that's what you want to try and redirect yourself to before you get further off course. Um, So, yeah, certainly after the first attempt, it could have been didn't work out, throw in the towel. But to me, it was like, okay, that, that didn't go the way we wanted, but what can we learn from that to go back and try and get back on that course of getting to the summit. Um, You know, it's never going to be that perfect linear process, but, uh, you know, at least that gives you a rough direction on how to get to where you're going. And I think, you know, to me, it was like, if it means enough to me, um, and this is such a lifelong dream, you know, I've attempted it once or twice, you know, I'm happy to put that extra work in to, to achieve it. So, Do you think it's something that you would have just kept going back to? I think so. Whenever I could have the opportunity, there's a lot to an Everest expedition. But uh, yeah, even if it took, you know, another 10 years, you know, and I said, okay, I have to put it on the back burner for now, but I'll continue working toward it. And then whenever I get my next opportunity, yeah, absolutely. Is there a moment that comes to mind where I guess the, the words or the support of someone else has gotten you through what would have been a bit of a rough patch or a bit of a down moment? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly think my dad was a big uh, supporter. And so... Uh, you know, it was certainly something that whilst I was climbing, we'd very much worked on together. All of his support and I guess belief in me from Kokoda is really what got me to Everest. Um, so it was certainly something I felt like we had achieved. And there were a couple moments. One, probably my hardest day on the first summit of Everest was uh, we were climbing from base camp up to camp two, which is a really tough sort of 12 hour straight of climbing. And it's that last section that really gets you. Those last few hours just seem to drag out. And they were meant really challenging and certainly um, yeah just thinking about my dad and even my family definitely helped me get through that moment and I think when I was that hour away from the summit and I knew I was going to get there I just remember thinking how excited he was going to be when I could tell him that I'd summited so yeah probably a few moments where I had that. And almost being able to visualise and see that person even when they're not with you. Yeah that's right. Would he ever do it? I never thought so, but he said to me, oh, I don't know, I'm starting to think about it. Like, he said I would love to climb together, obviously, if we did do it. So, yeah, I think uh, he'd be interested in, in the next few years looking at that. So you went back and summited it again. Yes. Uh, earlier this year, so May 2018. Yes. Why go back? I guess for me, I did not think I would go again after having summited. Um, but, yeah, after that sort of coming down period, I gave myself some time to look at you know, what my next goal might be, whether it was in climbing or something completely different. I really left it wide open to go, okay, now what do I feel like doing? Um, And it was about halfway through 2017 where I started to look at the north side of Everest. Um, So I'd climbed the south and the south and north routes are the two most prominent routes on Everest. Um, And it's quite an iconic one as well. And the more I thought about what I wanted to do next and what I was motivated by, this sort of kept coming up. And I just decided, all right, if I'm motivated by it and I can do it, then then this is what I want to do. And how was that compared to the first time? Was there a, was it a different feeling? Was it a, was it a different experience? It was. Experience? Uh, having summited before, you know you can do it. You have a better understanding of how your body operates at that altitude. Uh, but, you know, still, 
I think you've got to go into it knowing that just because you've summited before doesn't mean that nothing's going to happen this time or go wrong. You've still got to be as prepared uh, as you are the first time around. So I actually found it to be really tough early on um, just because of how the mountain is laid out. So there's quite long distances between camps um, and at high altitude. So you're jumping up to sort of 7,000 metres pretty quickly um, and that's certainly taxing as well. And imagine having to get yourself ready for that and realising that in the moment. And even with all the preparation, and I've done nothing like this, but I have run two marathons and I know the second one I was a lot more relaxed. I didn't have this fear. Um, I I know I didn't do the training. (laughs) And I definitely came out of it and went, man, I've got to respect the distance. Yeah. And it sounds like you combated some of that with some of that training, but was that a part of it as well? Absolutely, yeah. And I certainly found the same sort of thing. Like it wasn't necessarily any easier, um, but just having that deeper understanding mentally, like when I would hit the wall, same feeling, but I knew full well I'm nowhere near my limit and just having... Yeah, being quite calm in those moments, no matter how much it sort of hurt or you were having to push through, I understood that I'm more than capable of this and you just have a better understanding of what you're actually capable of. Imagine you must be pretty in tune to your body, not only in that experience but even being back home. Yeah. Um, and knowing which niggles to listen to and which ones to ignore. Yeah. How has that been you know, part of your world now. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, getting that mind and body connection to work together um, is something that you do stay in tune with and um, knowing even in training or, or whatever else I've got on here, sort of what pain is is helping you and is, I guess, progress in a way um, and then what's something that is dangerous that you need to listen to, understanding injury versus, um, you know, the, the good kind of uh, pain that helps you get better. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is what is... Which is which. And yeah. I think, again, for a lot of us, we don't spend the time really tuning into our body. It's almost like we're in our head a lot. Yes, uh, absolutely. But to actually tune in and, and feel and, and know and, and I guess um, almost know that your body's got you and, and can support you through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, certainly a big part of climbing and, and something I take back with me for sure is uh, I think you're right, we're, we are in our own head a lot and we use that a lot probably more so than our bodies as a rule. Um, But, yeah, climbing, you learn to bring those two together and you're achieving it physically but through mental. And so you've got to be able to have both of those in tune with each other. You described before uh, where you kind of had this kind of check-in time where you stopped and went, okay, what's next? And it may not even be in climbing or trekking. Yeah. Is there ever anything else that uh, interests you or could you see yourself, you know, doing something else? Yeah, there's a a few different things uh, throughout the year. Certainly coming into the business, uh, more so the business side of it than just the trekking was a new challenge for me post-Everest and pretty much been learning a lot about that since then. Um, Nothing specific, but yeah, I I really could see myself doing a few different things. And yeah, like I said, didn't want to have anything specific planned after Everest because I didn't know how I was going to feel or or what I was going to want to do next and uh, wanted to leave my options wide open. If I wanted to do a complete 180 and do something different, that option was there. Um, But yeah, I was still, I guess, motivated and inspired to continue climbing. 
the climbing kept calling yeah. you back. Yes, clearly, that's right. Clearly. So the the business is um, Adventure Professionals. Yes. Talk to me about what the business is. Yeah, so Adventure Professionals uh, is a business that I co-own with my dad. Uh, so he started that back in 2010. But really, uh, we've sort of been going hard at that full time for the last three, four years now. And predominantly what we do is take people across the Kokoda track. Uh, but we have a few other adventures as well. So Yukon dog sledding, uh, the Aussie 10 peaks, which are the 10 highest peaks here in Australia. We also do Mount Kilimanjaro and Everest Base Camp. So essentially we're an Australian uh, trekking company um, and some other adventures as well. Who who do you take? Like, you know, for someone who maybe is listening but they've never done any trekking or mountaineering or climbing, um, like is it for people that have got that experience? No, not at all. So we take people from all walks of life and predominantly people who haven't done a lot of this stuff. So we get everyone from school students to corporates, um, ex-veterans, like the whole range of different people. Um, And yeah, for a lot of them, like going to Gakota, they've never done anything like that before. People who have never camped and it's a totally uh, massive experience for them. So we sort of help them through the whole training process, the trekking, all of that, um, gear recommendations, just trying to give them everything we can. And um, yeah, so it's certainly not for people who who have done a lot of this before. What's it like to see someone who's got that apprehension first time they've ever done something like this and then to see them at the end of that? Yeah, oh, it's pretty amazing and getting to sort of be through that process with them. Um, You know, there's always some hard points, but seeing them push through that and then the pride that they feel at the end that they did something they weren't totally sure they could do. Um, Yeah, it's certainly something that, you know, we have a lot of respect for as well because it's hard to put yourself out there and say, you know, a lot of people say they're going to do it, but for those who actually show up and and who actually do it, um, yeah, it's pretty cool getting to see them go through that process and it's something that, you know, they're still friends with the people they trekked with years later. It's still something that stays with them for many years to come as well. I can imagine that camaraderie on on any of the trips that you've done is really, really strong. Yeah. How has that, I guess, stuck with you even in the in the treks and Yeah, I guess in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of the people that I've climbed or trekked with probably know me better than even my friends at school did because you're in a very real, quite candid environment where you can't put this facade on and you're in these really challenging circumstances together and I think that certainly forges um, a bond because you both understand sort of what you've been through and, um, yeah, so I've stayed connected with people that I've trekked and climbed with over the years and, uh, yeah, I guess they've seen me in my toughest moments and vice versa. So I wonder if that's part of the callback to it as well as the achievement, but also that that camaraderie, because, um, yeah, you're right. Like even in our day to day, you can have really strong, close friendships, but it's something that bonds you together by getting through a challenge, by having to pull each other up, by (laughs) deal with that interpersonal stuff as you go through as well. Yeah, absolutely. For you, what's the what's the next challenge ahead? Because I get that you are someone who's always thinking about what's next. Obviously, the business yes. and and growing that and learning some of the business skills. Yes. What else is on your radar? Um, a few different things. So as part of, I guess, another arm of the business, uh, I myself have started running the hiring climbing expeditions. Uh, so in January, I'll be guiding an expedition to the highest mountain in the Andes, which is one of the seven summits. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And we'll also be heading to Russia next year, um, climbing the highest mountain over there. So um, I guess for me, I, I enjoy um, climbing. And so this is sort of another arm of the business that, that I'll be working on for people who do want to do um, the bigger expedition 
competitions as well. And that'll be most of my focus next year. I'll be on Kokoda for Anzac Day as well. Um, so I think most of next year will be filled up with guiding trips. And then uh, I'll probably look at, yeah, what I want to do personally after that. It's sort of every two to three years that I'll look for that sort of bigger challenge that I want to take on. We just need another bigger mountain for you to... Yeah, <laughs> to I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do you find that you are your most happiest? Um, it's hard to pick. I think certainly in the mountains is probably where I feel most at home in a lot of ways. Um, there's certainly a sense of belonging there that more so than anywhere else. Um, but also I think just at home with my family is probably where I'm most comfortable as well. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Yes. And the premise is really around how do we um, live a bold life in amongst the busyness when there's so many distractions or not distractions, but just things pulling us in a million different directions. Yeah. Um, You know, how do people choose, you know, this is the the adventure or the path that I'm going to follow on. If I were to say that to you, Mm. um, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think for me it's, you know, having the courage to follow the path that I wish to take and and that's a lot easier said than done certainly. As you said, there's a lot of things calling our attention. For me it's been about really narrowing my focus. I know that I'm at my best when I can give 100% to something and that's what I enjoy doing. Um, So it's always been about finding the challenge that means the most to me um, and that I'll get the most out of going through the whole process, not just the goal itself, not just getting to a summit, but um, trying to be aligned with what I'm trying to achieve as much as just that feeling of success, um, certainly for me. But yeah, just the courage to take those risks and to be who you really are, I think yeah, is a lot easier said than done, but that's probably what living a standout life means to me. It's courageous, yeah. but one that's worth it in yeah. the end. Thank you so much for sharing your story, That's right. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.